Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome. Welcome on this bright morning to Essex Church, home of this gathered community known as Kensington Unitarians. A particular welcome to anyone who's here for the first time today. We're very glad to have you with us, and there'll be an opportunity to introduce yourself later on if you wish. For anyone who doesn't know me, my name is Jane Blackhall. I've been a member of this congregation since 1999. And these days I work here as Outreach Officer, which means I do the website, the newsletter and various bits and bobs to keep the show on the road. Our Minister Sarah is having a well-earned day off today, so I'll be leading this morning's service, but she'll be back next week. Our opening words today are from Sarah C. Stewart. Bring who you are as you enter this church this morning. Bring your best self and your struggling self. Bring your mistakes and your triumphs. Bring your shortcomings and your recommitment to good. Bring yourself here and open your heart to beauty, to truth, to the door that is open to the presence of God. Here in this church we are trying to walk together on the peaceable way, trying to hammer out division and hatred and all that separates one from another. We try and we will fall short, but held in love, we try again. We come together this morning as a church to bow our heads in prayer, to raise our voices in song, to remember our promises and vow to live by them once again. Let's start by lighting our chalice, the symbol of our worldwide Unitarian and Unitarian Universalist community. I'm going to ask Janine to light the flame. The light of life shines through the eyes of each and every person. The light of truth shines through each life. May the light of this chalice remind us that our search for truth and light is ongoing and is enhanced and nurtured by every person we meet. May we honour the light in each other. Deep mystery of our lives, God of all love, voice in our hearts and light in our minds, in the freedom of our fellowship, with the support this beloved community may provide, we come together as adventurers called forth in spirit, pushing the limits of our lives outwards to what is more loving and just, more beautiful and true. Here in this meeting place, this church made holy by the memories, the aspirations, the ideals of those before us, we would be inspired by their example. These were men and women of vision, people of spirit. We here today are also people of spirit. We too are struck in awe before the great mystery of the cosmos. We too are powerfully moved by deep concern for our world and our care for one another. The Spirit moves also in us as a free religious community joined in aspiration, commitment and hope. May ours be a faith that is more than just beautiful words and high ideals. 
May ours be a faith of vitality and commitment, a faith that burns in our hearts and blazes in our minds. May ours be a faith that shines out to the world in the light of deeds and the witness of actions. O source and spirit of our lives, may we respond boldly to your call for adventure, for justice, for peace, for love and for joy. Amen. This is Meaning Well by Charles Ortman. It's an, expert, uh, it's an excerpt by an expert from a sermon by a Unitarian Universalist minister called Charles Ortman. He tells the story of a conversation he had with an elder in his congregation, a well-regarded man named Porter. They were discussing a church project that seemed to be taking forever to happen, and Porter was quite fed up about this and considered the fault to lie with one particular person who was dragging their feet. The minister, Charles, tried to smooth over the situation by saying, oh, he meant to have it done by now, he means well. And it turns out this was the worst thing he could have said to Porter, who went off on the following rant. I want to tell you something my mother once said to me, Charlie, he said. A long time ago, my mother told me that the very worst thing that anyone could possibly say about another human being was that they mean well. If you say that someone means well, you're saying that they're unreliable and that their word is useless. Then he went on to say a few choice and rather derogatory things about those who mean well. Porter was insisting that I recognise the fuller implications of what it means when someone is supposedly well-intended, when all they have to show for their good intention is the intention itself. Intentions without actions to back them up are useless, he assured me. If you say someone means well, you might as well say that you've given up on them. Porter's judgment was a bit harsh, I suspect. He was expressing a standard to which he held himself accountable. I also imagine his mother's exhortation was similar to what many of us here might have grown up with. I sure did. In my house, it was the adage, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Maybe that saying rang in some of your ears from time to time as well. It's difficult to put ourselves in someone else's shoes, as it ought to be. There are just too many things we can't know about someone else's situation. It's pretty rare when we know... Hmm. Yes, it's pretty rare when what we know is sufficient to make us expert enough to cast judgment on others. The point is, though, that leaving the judgment of others aside, we might each do well to discern for ourselves the difference between what we mean to do and what we actually do. And on the grander scale, the difference between what we mean to do with our lives and what we actually do with them. These words are taken from a book called Personal Commitments, Beginning, Keeping, Changing by Margaret Farley, who is both a Catholic Sister of Mercy and Professor Emerita of Ethics at Yale University. She writes, The essential elements of interpersonal commitment are an intention regarding future action and the undertaking of an obligation to another regarding that intended action. The primary purpose of explicit, 
expressed interpersonal commitment is to provide some reliability of expectation regarding the actions of free persons whose wills are shakeable. It allows us some grounds for counting on each other. Because our wills are shakeable, we need a way to assure others that we will be consistent. Because we know our own inconsistencies, we need a way to strengthen ourselves for fulfilling our present intentions in an otherwise uncertain future. Yielding to someone else a claim over our future actions provides a barrier against our fickle changes of heart, our losses of vision and our weaknesses. By commitment, we give ourselves bonds and give ourselves a power which, help, which will help us to do what we truly want to do but might not otherwise be able to do in the future. A remedy for inconsistency and uncertainty, commitment is our wager on the truth of our present insights and the hopes of our present love. If we are ever to sort out how and when we are obligated to our commitments, we must have some way of determining their limits. If all of our commitments are absolutely binding, then we shall expect to be overwhelmed by their competing claims with no way to resolve them or to live them faithfully in peace. Obviously, not every commitment that we make is of equal importance to us or equally comprehensive in its claim on us. We do set limits to the obligations we undertake. Almost all of our commitments are provisional in some sense. Almost all are partial, conditional, relative. It must be so. Sometimes there are limits within our commitments of which we are not aware. That is, it is possible to think, for us to think mistakenly that we are committed wholly to something or someone when in fact we are not, or the depth of our commitment may be much less than we thought it to be. There is perhaps no remedy except time and experience for deficiencies in our own self-knowledge. It is, however, possible to be more reflective about the limits we intended to include in our commitments. To understand limits is not always to diminish a commitment, but might, rather, serve to focus it, to allow it to share in the overall power and hope of a committed life. We've now come to the time in our service for a period of meditation. You might want to get yourself comfortable in your chair, put down anything you don't need to be holding. You might want to have your feet flat on the floor. You could close your eyes, soften your gaze, maybe look at the candles in the centre. There'll be some introductory words from Leif Seligman to take us into the silence, then a good few moments of shared stillness, and then some closing words before I ring the bell to bring our meditation to a close.
we pause in the stillness to rest for a while, to quiet ourselves so that we can feel what stirs within us. Each breath draws us closer to the pulse of life, and with each exhalation, we make room for something new. May we find in this gathering the comfort of those who care. May we find patience along our growing edges and compassion in our most tender spots. May we find the inspiration and encouragement we most need to face our challenges and nurture ourselves. And in the presence of suffering across the globe, may we redouble our efforts to practice kindness where we are, with the hope that the light of our actions travels like the light of faraway stars. Let us enter into a time of silence together and pause in the stillness to rest for a while. Each breath draws us closer to the pulse of life and with each exhalation we make room for something new. When life presses in and shifts us off balance, when pain assails us, when frustration mounts, may the rhythm of our breath steady us and bring us back to a place of gratitude. In the Gospel of Matthew, towards the end of chapter 5, just after the Beatitudes, Jesus is reported to have said the following words. I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your yes be yes, and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. These verses are generally taken to be about forbidding the practice of swearing oaths, the idea which is very famously taken seriously by the Quakers in particular. For them, the idea is that to swear an oath implies that you have a double standard of truth. If you're saying, no, this time really I swear on the Bible it's true, what does that mean about what you're saying the rest of the time? Can we ever trust you? The Quakers historically have had such a commitment to integrity, it's understood that you must speak the whole truth at all times. It's about saying what you mean and meaning what you say without fail in every situation. So that is one interpretation of that particular saying, let your yes be yes and your no, no. But over the next 12 minutes or so, I want to consider the issue a little bit more broadly. For me, it's not just about those highly charged situations where you might swear an oath, but every scenario in everyday life where we say yes and no and make commitments to the people around us. I want to consider the various ways we go about making these commitments to each other and to ourselves, big and small, implicit and explicit, partial and total, conditional and unconditional. How can we get better at making and following through on those commitments? 
And I also want to say something about how saying a wholehearted yes, even in the face of doubt, can change your life. Hopefully at least some of you are familiar with the classic reggae song by Jimmy Cliff, which inspired the title of this service, Let Your Yeah Be Yeah. The lyrics of that song bring the issue right back down to earth, to our everyday interpersonal aggravations. Uh, It articulates the frustrations of those yeses and nos that we hear and we can't rely on. Jimmy Cliff says, well, he doesn't say, he sings, but I'm not going to sing it. He says, you keep telling me yes, but you don't mean it. You keep telling me no and try to lean it. You're giving me buts and maybes. You know this will drive me crazy. Why can't you tell it like it is? It is a reasonable enough question, Jimmy. Why can't we always tell it like it is, or at least why don't we? When I think about this sort of thing, my first instinct is to dredge up a list of past grievances. Every time I have been let down or messed around by someone in this way, I've got plenty... Just two little examples. I decided to have a party. This doesn't happen often. Weeks in advance, a bunch of people said yes, they were coming, but one by one they made their excuses and dropped out till there were only two of us left. I felt quite dejected, and I called off the party altogether. So you could say their yeah wasn't really yeah. Example two, I planned a workshop. Quite a few people said, oh, that sounds great. Only one person signed up for definite, and with a week to go, I cancelled the workshop due to lack of interest. And the moment I cancelled it, loads of people came up to me and said, oh, I was planning to come, it sounded really good. Their no wasn't really no. Or perhaps that's more of a buts and maybes situation. Being non-committal can functionally be equivalent to saying no, whatever you might have intended by it. So these are just two tiny examples. It's exceedingly tempting to focus on all the times that we feel that we've been wronged or let down in this way, when people apparently haven't kept their word. But as the UU Minister Charles Altman suggested in our first reading, we can never fully know what forces or circumstances might cause the other person to change their yes to a no or to be non-committal in the first place. So it's probably more fruitful if we focus on our own conduct instead, examining that, because at least in theory that's something we've got a bit more power to change and influence. Of course, there are plenty of times when my year hasn't been year and I've let other people down too. So, generally speaking, are you somebody who likes to say yes? Imagine, you're invited to an event, you're asked for assistance, you're offered an opportunity of some sort. In the moment, yes often seems like the nice thing to say, the way to please other people. And often we sincerely mean that yes at the moment that we utter it, but we might come to regret it later when we find we're a bit overcommitted or we get a better offer. Maybe sometimes we know we're already a bit doubtful about whether we're going to follow through in it, even at the moment when we say it, but we still can't bring ourselves to say no, for reasons that have got more to do with perhaps social embarrassment than anything else. Or perhaps you are someone who likes to say no or likes to avoid committing yourself. Maybe you're wary, for good reason, of making promises you might not be able to keep or of having others rely on you. Perhaps you like to keep your options open, and so, more often than not, you say maybe. So each of us may have a default tendency to be a a yes-sayer or a no-sayer or a maybe-sayer. And there are consequences, of course, to all of these ways of behaving. When we give someone our word, we lead them to believe that they can count on us, and they make their own plans based on that. If we say yes lightly and then regret it, we end up having to choose. Do we let someone down, or do we go through it when we don't really want to? If we say no lightly, or if we simply withhold our yes and we're a bit non-committal, then we may fail to support other people's endeavours when we would have liked to, or we may just miss out of opportunities for ourselves. So as I've already intimated, what we're talking about, if we dig a bit deeper in nearly all of these scenarios, is commitment. Margaret Farley said in our second reading, and she said it quite formally because she's a philosopher, 
Commitment is an intention regarding future action and the undertaking of an obligation to another. Because we know our own inconsistencies, we need to find a way to strengthen ourselves, make a barrier against our fickle changes of heart, our losses of vision, our weaknesses. By commitment, we give ourselves bonds and give ourselves a power which will help us to do what we truly want to do. It is a remedy for inconsistency and uncertainty. That's Margaret Farley. I'd add to that the observation that commitments are of varying degrees of significance. Some are huge things that involve our whole lives. Some are tiny and time-limited. The obligation involved in making marriage vows or joining a religious order is on a totally different scale from saying, let's go on holiday together, or yes, I will give a talk at summer school, which is on a different scale to saying, yes, I will come to your picnic, or signing up to make the tea at church. And all of these widely varying yeses and noes are up for examination as far as I'm concerned. I'd like to bring in another variable. Some commitments are formal and explicit, whilst others are informal, implicit, and sometimes entirely unspoken. Certain kinds of relationships carry with them expectations which are rarely articulated, and these differing expectations can be the source of all sorts of problems and discord. You can end up in situations where one of the parties has absolutely no sense of a binding commitment having been made in the first place, while the other one is tearing their hair out about being let down and wronged. Uh, an example that a friend gave me was a, a new relationship where one of the partner expected the, others, the other one to be in touch and send messages pretty much every day. The other one wasn't so fast, was happy to let communication drop and go for days without replying. They had totally different expectations of what commitments implicitly came along with that relationship in terms of communication. So I'd suggest there's a lot to be said for making these implicit commitments a bit more explicit to avoid this sort of confusion and disappointment. As awkward as such conversations and negotiations might seem, they're a lot less awkward than simmering resentment. Being clearer in ourselves about what we mean by a certain commitment is also important. As Margaret Farley said, it is possible to be more reflective about the limits we intend. How do we really feel about it? Do we honestly mean yes? Are we going to see it through? Perhaps we need to hesitate before we give our answer and mull it over properly, give ourselves a couple of days. This can help us to narrow the gap between what we mean to do and what we actually do. Maybe our yes, no, or maybe needs to be conditional. It depends on other things. And whatever the answer to the question might be, once we've given it due attention, we need to take care to communicate that clearly with anyone else who's affected by it. Maybe explore the mutual expectations, negotiate a bit, even if that feels a bit awkward and clumsy. I've got to acknowledge that it is sometimes totally unavoidable that we break commitments. From time to time, we have multiple commitments pulling in different directions. We may need to prioritise and break one commitment to honour another. Life is so complex that it's not always obvious how we should make that prioritisation. Is it on the basis of greatest need, on the closeness of the relationship, on the scale of the harm or help that might result? Our circumstances can change unexpectedly and through no fault of our own. There may be some commitments which simply become impossible. It's a bit of a balancing act. On the one hand, not taking our commitments too lightly and letting ourselves off the hook, but on the other hand, not being bloody-minded and fulfilling them at any cost, including the cost of our own well-being. And it is completely legitimate in some circumstances that we just change our mind. When our yes becomes no, then that's got to be respected. It becomes a question of consent. On those rare occasions when we find that we really can't follow through on a commitment, then I'd say we need to think carefully about our best to handle that handle that honourably. That might just entail giving people a heads up as soon as we can see there's a problem on the horizon so they have plenty of notice to deal with it some way. 
maybe check it out whether it's possible to renegotiate the arrangements rather than making it all or nothing and a yes-no situation. It's all about the communication. I read a light and fluffy article by the life coach, uh, Royal Scuderi, which gave five tips for keeping your word. And although they don't cover perhaps every nuance that I'd like to, I thought they were quite handy guidelines. So I'm going to give you the digest version, paraphrase. She says, tip one, make it concrete. Try to be sure ahead of time that you're going to be willing and able to do something before you commit to it and get as clear as you can about the expectations of everyone who's involved. Tip two, consider getting it in writing. Verbal agreements tend to be vague and experienced differently by all the parties involved. And also there's a subclause of that. Sometimes we don't follow through on um, commitments because we forgot about them. Just write it down somewhere. You know, um, Remember what you've put your name to. Tip three, small promises count. If you don't message back, if you don't repay a small sum you owe, then you can erode trust, damage your reputation and appear irresponsible. You might make the other person feel dismissed and unimportant to you and none of that is good. Tip four, a challenging one, by default, do it anyway. Once you have made a commitment, don't make excuses for yourself too easily. Push yourself a bit and give yourself the satisfaction of following through and keeping your word. On those rare occasions when you really have to go back on your word, then ask about altering the agreement. And if you've been consistently reliable in the past, then on the whole, people will understand that. And tip five, expect the same of others. Expect the best of people and don't take your agreements with them too lightly. If someone fails to keep their word, then be clear and honest in your disappointment. So those are five tips on keeping your word or letting your yeah be yeah from Royal Scuderi. There's one bonus final aspect to saying and meaning yes that I want to bring in today. Commitment is not just about our obligations and what we owe to other people. To repeat again what Margaret Farley said, it is a barrier against our fickle changes of heart, our losses of vision, our weaknesses, and it gives us a power which will help us to do what we truly want to do. Integrity coach Mark Wright says a little more on this subject. He says, Every commitment we make or break has a direct impact on our integrity, character, and ultimately the fulfilment of our life. The easier path is to play small and not ask much of life, and therefore not be required to give much either. However, this does not bring forth the highest expression of yourself. When it comes to big, significant, potentially life-changing commitments, the most obvious example that comes to me um, is getting married or embarking on some kind of serious, committed relationship. In those commitments, we can never totally be sure ahead of time that it'll all work out perfectly and effortlessly. In fact, we can probably be sure that it won't. And there's a risk that we'll hang around endlessly, waiting until we're certain it's the right move, and an attendant risk that we will miss out on whatever good thing life has put in our way just because of our hesitation. These big commitments often require a leap of faith. That's kind of the point of them. They are an expression of your highest vision, your best intention, your heart's desire, and the commitment itself helps to give you the strength to see it through and make it a reality. I use marriage as my example because it involves a very visible public affirmation of the commitment between two people, which only serves to strengthen its binding power. Humans are trying buggers even when you love them dearly, and building a life together is not an easy thing. In a way, this is a form of tying yourself to the mast to help your future self stay true to your original intentions in the face of all the trials and tests you are likely to encounter along the way. And of course, this goes for other significant commitments too, pursuing a tough career path or embarking on a creative endeavour that will stretch you. A wholehearted yes as we embark 
even in the face of doubt, can give us the power to do something hard and open us up to braver and bigger possibilities than we could face up to if we were half-hearted and tentative about it. And this vocal affirmation is even more important when two or more people are involved. Each has to give the other confidence to make the leap and trust in an entangled future together. So in that spirit of a wholehearted yes, which leads us on to greater things, I want to close with a fragment of a famous piece, often uh, misattributed to Goethe, but actually by W.H. Murray. Until one is committed, there is hesitancy, the chance to draw back, always ineffectiveness. Concerning all acts of initiative and creation, there is one elementary truth. The moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves too. All sorts of things occur to help one that would never otherwise have occurred. A whole stream of events issues from the decision, raising in one's favour all manner of unforeseen incidents and meetings and material assistance which no one could have dreamed would come their way. May it be so for all of us. Amen. Blessed is the path on which you travel. Blessed is the body which carries you upon it. Blessed is your heart which has heard the call. Blessed is your mind which discerns the way. Blessed is the gift that you will receive by going. Truly blessed is the gift that you will become on the journey. May you go forth in peace. Amen.